Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode with Peter Mayerholtz. So we had a conversation here with Peter, and he's going to discuss a lot of things that are just absolutely chock full of insights about how to build a product strategy, a design strategy, and get people on board with making the best decisions they can. I'll leave it to you to take the insights that you will out of it. And I really enjoyed the conversation. A couple of things that I wanted to mention is, you know, Peter mentioned and how he helps do this work is a canvas that he put together to help people understand all the pieces of a strategy before you move forward. Now, we don't have Peter's blueprint, but here at Aurelius, we actually did create a product strategy blueprint. It's a PDF that you can download for free and use to help people understand what the strategy is for your product and design. We'll make sure to have a link to that in the show notes, so feel free to go check that out. A lot of things that Peter will talk about in this episode are specifically the elements that create a really solid product strategy or a design strategy. And those things include setting very clear goals for your product, your user experience, the business, figuring out the research insights and what you know about people that you're serving as a business, and then highlighting the decisions you're making and how they are supported by both that research and the goals that you made. So Peter and I discuss that way of creating a product strategy. And I wanted to let you know that we actually created a free product strategy email mini course for you to sign up and learn exactly how to do this stuff for free. And it's a a four day email mini course free to sign up. And it's going to go into greater detail on how to help you do all of these things, set clear goals, do user research and actually create insights from that communicating a product strategy and even helping people understand how to measure it. That's completely free. We'll make sure there's a link there to sign up in the show notes as well. And finally, just to mention, if you've been listening to our podcast before, or if this is your first time and you enjoy it, it would really mean a lot to us if you went to iTunes or SoundCloud or Google Play and give us a rating. We're obviously a startup. We don't have the kind of marketing dollars that a lot of other people do. And we put this stuff out for free. Uh, to help you guys out. So I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, it would mean a lot to us to give us a rating. And so with that, on to the episode. Welcome to Aurelius Podcast, Episode 6. I am Zach Naylor, CEO and co-founder here at Aurelius. Today's guest is Peter Merholtz, a design executive currently with IBM, working on blockchain and identity, and recent author of the book, Org design for design orgs. Peter Merholtz, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we're very pleased to have you here, just given all of the contributions you have made both recently and for a very long time uh, to the world of user experience and product design in general. And we're really excited to have a conversation with you about those things. I'm uh, looking forward to it. Great. Well, let's just dive right in because the the first question I would really love to ask you is from your perspective, you know, as a product and design executive, what is product strategy? Uh, for me, uh, ultimately, product strategy is uh, product strategy are the answers to the questions that I had as a designer uh, that I needed. I needed to have those answers in order to do my design well. Hmm. Um, uh, so, product strategy is is kind of what sets up the the framework, the goals, the objectives, the vision 
for what it is you're going to be doing, for what it is the problem you're going to solve, the opportunity you're trying to realize, uh, and a clear set of, you know, whether it's uh, measures of success, uh, 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 OKRs, uh, a vision, uh, you know, some type of uh, kind of prototype or scenario of the future, you know, those types of things that help a team understand what it is they are building uh, as they shift out of strategy and into the execution work. Yeah. Okay. I love several parts of that answer in which I want to dive into. Just to recap what you're saying, I mean, really product strategy from your perspective as someone in that executive role is making sure that we have an answer to the questions, what are we doing for design? Yeah, yeah. I, um, the way I got into it, uh, when I was working at Adaptive Path, when we started, we saw ourselves as primarily a design firm and a user experience design firm. And, um, you know, workflows and wireframes and doing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would often... Uh, in working with our clients, our cl- we would ask our clients questions about who are the users, why are they coming here, what else are they doing, you know, how will you measure success, how will you know if we're if we're doing the right thing, and we asked those questions because we realized that in order for our design to work, it needed we needed to be uh, focusing our design efforts on the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think too often designers are given a brief or, or a set of requirements and just go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we saw if we did that, we might do a really great design for something that um, <laughs> so something that hadn't really been thought through from a strategic angle. And so our great design was useless because it was solve it wasn't solving an interesting problem. And so we backed into doing the strategy work because we often found that our clients often didn't have an answer. Uh, to those questions. And so we had to start getting those answers ourselves uh, so that we could make sure that when we got to our design work, we knew we had confidence that what we were working on was meaningful, was useful, uh, was uh, far more likely to be uh, shipped and shipped um, uh, looking like what we were delivering. Uh, so that's that's how we got into strategy. So yeah, it's about, it's about framing and um, answering the right questions that set up the product development work, the design and engineering. Yes, absolutely. I mean, just to, I mean, you're absolutely echoing things that we believe here wholeheartedly. And as a matter of fact, why we even exist as a company, uh, we say it in a different way, but using some of the exact same words and just solving the right problems, building the stuff that matters. You know, we've had conversations with people recently where they said, we're great at design sprints or we're great at agile, but then we build stuff for six months and we poke our heads up and say, wait a second, why are we building this thing? We did it really efficiently and uh, you know, it's, it's done well, but it's not the right thing. So as a follow on to that, Peter, I am curious, do you still find a lot of organizations in this trap where they don't necessarily have the answers to what are we doing and why? Oh, uh, Totally. I, my, I suspect that will be true forever. <laughs> um, uh, I don't think uh, at some point every company will realize uh, the importance of strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the things, uh, particularly in the modern uh, era that gets in the way of strategy is this um, almost religious celebration of speed and 
quickness and and ship it yesterday kind of mindset mm-hmm. or you know kind of a, a lean principles of get it out and then you know iterate with your customers and all that kind of stuff and so uh, I I see um, many organizations that are basically willing to forego strategy in favor of launching something and um, I, I guess hoping to uncover their strategy in the market, <laughs> uh, which uh, strikes me as uh, foolish. Um, yeah, I, I, I yes is the is the I gave you the long answer and the short answer is yes. Uh, companies are still not uh, particularly strategic. Many of them. yeah, well for sure. And uh, you know, I was kind of leading the witness. I had a feeling I knew how you were going to answer that, but you know, as a follow-up to that as well, given your experience and perspective, again, at that executive level, how do we prevent this? Or I guess maybe a better, a better way of asking you too, Peter, is how have you done this successfully? Because you have, right? Yeah. So uh, probably the, the, the best tool I had to prevent it, uh, when I was leading, uh, a design team in particular, I go back to, I was the VP of design for Groupon for about a year and a half. Mm And at Groupon, when I joined, there was a lot of non-strategic product development going on, uh, <laughs> where a product manager had a feature they need to build, and they were executing, trying you know, to get it out. And there wasn't a lot of thought about, again, who were the users? What were we hoping to achieve? Like, there, No one had really stepped back and, and framed up the problem. Mm-hmm. And so the way I addressed it there uh, was basically twofold. Uh, one, uh, I made a point of hiring more senior designers mm-hmm. uh, who could engage uh, with with strategic conversations, with with uh, engage with product management um, at a more strategic level, um, and not simply be seen as uh, design stylists and 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 design executors. Mm-hmm. Um, when I joined the company, the team was very junior and very just execution oriented. So the first first thing I needed to do was bring in uh, a level of design leadership that could drive the right conversations uh, to make sure that we were cognizant of strategy uh, and and even informing the strategy. Because mm-hmm. uh, what we often, what we then found, once I had the right leaders in place, what I often found was that the product managers were not engaged. They, they weren't doing strategy. They had kind of punted that, um, punted that part of the process because I think they felt pressure to just release stuff okay. and any any pause to think about what they were doing uh, was seen as slowing them down. And one of the nice things about being a VP is uh, you can you can make executive decisions. Um, and one of the executive decisions I made was I told my design leads to not do any design if they didn't have a series of questions answered mm. around what it was we were hoping to achieve with the product. Um, again, who is the audience? What are the met- metrics that we are going to be focusing on? What are the risks? What are some of the roadblocks? Do we have a plan in terms of what is the process by which we're going to achieve it? Who are our stakeholders? Like we used, there's a, there's a, a tool called the Project Canvas. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, it's based on the business model canvas, right? Mm-hmm. This idea of a one pager with boxes that you fill in mm-hmm. uh, that, that a- with answers to basically each of these questions. And we started using that as a tool. My senior designers were using that as a tool with the product managers. And basically, we were saying, we're not going to start design work until we have all of this filled in because we didn't want to be doing design work that 
um, could uh, be rendered uh, moot if it turns out the strategy were to somehow shift or because it wasn't clearly articulated once it's finally articulated, we realize like the problems over here instead of over there. And so uh, I just, you know, I was able to uh, make it such that we just didn't do design work for anything that didn't have a clear strategy in place because um, we didn't have enough designers to, 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 to do stuff that wasn't important. And if a team, a product team hadn't, identified their strategy, then I could say, well, then it must not be very important. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah. So, you know, I would just, uh, I would try to enforce doing the right thing in order to make it work. Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually interesting to hear you say that you use the project canvas. You know, we actually developed something not similar to the project canvas, but a paper tool for free uh, here at Aurelius called the the product strategy blueprint. And it's, it's exactly that to make sure we're doing the right thing. Uh, <clears throat> you know, and you're connecting those goals. You mentioned whatever user research insights you've gathered to the decisions you've made, right? So you can just map all that out on a piece of paper. And if you hand that to somebody and there's blink uh, spaces on that paper, there's a conversation to be had, right? Totally. totally. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. So something you mentioned in there is that, you know, you had, you had hired senior designers to work with product management. Now, I want to dig into that because I think, you know, here's something that I've said. If you ask 100 different UX designers what UX means, you'll get 100 different answers. I feel that's also true with product management. So my question to you, Peter, is what is the difference in our case between UX and product management? <laughs> I love this question. Um, uh, because I, I've been giving a talk uh, where I... I stake a claim. Well, let me let me back up a bit. Um, I stake a claim that the entire field of user experience exists because of poor product management. Mm. If product managers had been doing their job, we wouldn't need quote unquote user experience. We'd still need design. I distinguish between user experience and design. Um, design is is uh, the act of design. It's the craft of 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 design work, right? Interaction design, information architecture, content strategy, all those all those fields I, I consider design. Mm -hmm. User experience is different, right? User experience is the sum total of kind of interactions that someone is having with an organization and the experience they derive from that. That is the user experience, and it's not simply a design. It's not, not simply an outcome of design. It's an outcome of, of design, engineering, sales and marketing, uh, service and support. All of those things ultimately contribute to the user experience. Mm -hmm. And given that approach, there is essentially no distinction between user experience and product management, right? The reason user experience came up is because product managers historically have been uh, from technical or business backgrounds. Oh, and, and often both, right? They're the 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 archetypal product manager, at least in Silicon Valley, is someone with a uh, CS or engineering undergrad degree uh, who maybe spent four or five, six years working, and then went and got an MBA. Mm -hmm. And then when they graduated uh, from business school, they are a product manager. Um, but they're they're focused on tech and business. And if you think of the there's the kind of famous three circles of mm -hmm. product management, of innovation that are essentially uh, understand the user, understand the business, understand the technology. It could be called um, uh, desirability, uh, viability and feasibility. It could be called 
UX, uh, engineering and business, whatever you call those three circles. I'm guessing anybody listening to this podcast is familiar with those three circles. Given those three circles, product management, I argue, should be all three. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and if you talk to, there's um, uh, Martin Erickson runs the Mind the Product Conference, and mm -hmm. he's written about this. And he has that diagram of the three circles and has a little arrow pointing to the middle uh, for product managers saying, you are here. But, but given those three circles, uh, product managers have done fine with the business and technical aspects and have totally punted on the, on the user needs aspects. And the issue with that is, uh, well, and so, so they've punted on the user, the user experience aspects. And so that meant um, designers who were working with product managers often realized, wait a moment, there's this thing that's missing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's this, this aspect of what we're doing. We're, you're, you're giving us requirements mm -hmm. that to build a system that no one would actually ever use. It might, it might serve some business case that you've realized, and it might be technically feasible, but no human is actually going to engage with this. And, uh, but we often didn't have evidence to say, you know, we didn't have evidence to back that up. It was our intuition, right? And if you think about much of what we do in user experience around user research, uh, whether it's upfront or sketching and prototyping and putting those in front of people and that kind of iterative user-centered design, all of that is basically in order to build up evidence as to why a design will or won't work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, in order to kind of, I would argue, address this, this gap that had been existing in product management. And so, um, this is a long answer, but but uh, I, I there's a lot to unpack there. Mm -hmm. My what I would argue is that product management and user experience are thus pretty much identical, uh, in that they both need to sit at the middle there of um, design, tech, and business. Right? If you think of design, tech, and business as as the the three circles, user experience is what emerges from that. Product management is how you. Uh, coordinate efforts to deliver that, but they're they're basically the same thing. Um, uh, the the one other thing I think that's worth recognizing, kind of historically with product management, is that tech and business are very kind of uh, stereotypically left-brained mm -hmm. uh, uh, activities. They're very analytical. They're very rigorous. They they are they're about breaking things down. They're very mechanistic. Whereas design and and kind of that that user empathy is much more right-brained. It's more emotional, it's more creative, it's more generative, right? And so product management historically has been a very left-brained um, activity, mm -hmm. uh, which means that it has been missing out on the totality, right? We are not simply left-brained people, right? People are, are, are fuller than that. And uh, what I would argue is if you take a user experience approach to product management, you, you end up with a more holistic approach to uh, developing your product. Yes, absolutely. So interesting couple things that you've said there and even earlier in our conversation, I want to repackage and present to you. So, sure. you know, we talked about product strategy really being, as I would always summarize, an understanding of what we're doing as a business and understanding from our customers and making good decisions that are based and founded in those things. I, I hear you also then talking about, you know, the difference between the work that we do as UX designers and product managers is really one and the same, except our focus tends to be more on, you know, either the customer or user or on the side of the business. So if all those things are true, 
you know, what does a good decision look like? What does a good recommendation for the product strategy look like in this case? How does it manifest? So the way I would have it, I mean, that's one of the, one of the values of having design involved in strategy, in product strategy, is that it can, uh, to use your word, design can manifest the strategy. Strategies by their nature are abstract. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're bullet points, they're measures, they're goals. They are, they are not concrete in and of themselves. They, they set up a kind of abstract framework of what it is we're hoping to achieve. Mm-hmm. The role that design plays is to um, make that, those abstractions more concrete through ideation and concept generation, through prototyping, through storyboards and other kind of scenario development, right? There's a set of tools that designers can bring to the to the strategy work that um, helps make those abstractions more concrete, and in doing so, reflects back on those abstractions and kind of pokes and probes and tests those abstractions. I think one of the failings of strategy before design has been as involved with it is that strategies can often contra- be internally uh, uh, at conflict and mm-hmm. contradict themselves. Um, but those contradictions are not apparent because, uh, when they're still in those abstract, uh, still in that abstract mode, um, the implications aren't clear. Mm-hmm. And then you bring that faulty strategy into development. And as you start trying to build something that has a faulty strategy in the building process, you realize, wait a moment, we have, we have measures of success that are in conflict with one another. You know, we want to, generate as much revenue as possible, but we want to make our customers happy. And if we try to generate as much revenue as possible, let's say, imagine you're a, an app, right? You start doing a, a in-app purchases or you start doing ads or you start doing these kinds of things that interrupt the experience. Well, that makes our customers unhappy. Mm-hmm. And you're like, but I'm trying to make my customers happy, you know? And, and so the the goal that, the, the, the um, value that design brings into strategy is, while it's still sketchy, while it's still in this kind of prototyping mode, you can um, depict the implications of those of that strategy in a way that makes it feel concrete and in a way that people can start judging it. And then they realize what the implications are of those strategic decisions, and they can change those strategic ideas before they move into a an, into a true development process, right? And yeah. so, that's 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 key is by having design up front as a, as as a contributor up front. It's not necessarily driving it, but it's a contributor up front. It basically serves as a almost like risk mitigation on strategy. <laughs> you make sure that the strategy yeah. actually holds water and isn't um, kind of just a bunch of wishful thinking that is actually not feasible uh, to 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 deliver. Yeah. Okay. So what I really hear here is that. The most successful way to do a product strategy is to really include design upfront, but more important than that, allow design to even influence what that strategy is. Definitely. I mean, at design, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much a fan of, you know, the three in the box uh, model uh, when it comes to product development of, of product design and engineering, right? And I see each of them as being contributors. Sometimes you can add to that um, marketing um, you might, depending on if you consider user experience or sorry, user research part of design, you could add to it user research, mm. but, but that three in the box model is appropriate and, and each of them ought to be contributing, uh, their perspectives 
uh, throughout the life cycle of product development. So that includes the definition or strategy as well as the execution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would argue there's there's two components. I've been focusing on design, on making a concrete. The other component uh, that's that's essential to make sure you're engaging in while still doing strategy is the user research. And, and I think you mentioned that with your tool as well, uh, d- deriving user insights. A strategy that is not grounded in authentic user empathy uh, is not quite meaningless, <laughs> um, um, but is uh, at risk at a, at a higher risk of failing, I would argue, uh, because it's not it hasn't really been um, vetted with the with the people who will ultimately engage with it. Yeah, you know, I'm actually going to jump in and just throw my opinion in there and say I actually think it is meaningless because even even based on our conversation here, you know, everything that we've talked about is a way to judge and react to a strategy to make sure that it can meet those needs. You know, if if the needs of our customers are using or users are missing from the beginning, uh, then that strategy is incomplete. Um, uh, that's true. Uh, the only reason I'm I'm, I hedged a little bit there is that I am not religious about user research mm. uh, in that I think it kind of depends on the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, if you are working on a consumer facing app in a space that you are pretty familiar with, you can do way less user research and actually rely on yourself. I am I am fine with that. Mm-hmm. Apple has generated gajillion dollars in market cap with that model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't want to suggest they're doing it wrong, uh, given the six obvious success they've had. But when you're uh, working in a context where your customers are very different from you, so right, as, as you mentioned earlier, uh, I'm working at IBM, we're working on, on building tools, uh, uh, well, building our own blockchain, and then creating offerings uh, uh, that are based on our blockchain. Um, our audience is primarily a highly technical developer audience, like even more than mo- most development audiences, mm-hmm. just because how early blockchain is. Right? It, this is not this is not a, a jQuery libraries. This is <laughs> this is some pretty deep computer science here. Right. And that's an audience I know nothing about. So I would never try to design for that kind of audience without engaging in. Uh, significant user research so that I can better understand the challenges that those folks are facing. Similarly, if I was designing for healthcare professionals, if I was designing a, something that went into a hospital, mm-hmm. if I was designing for bankers or or investment professionals, any anyone who has you know who operates in this in a sphere of expertise that I am simply not familiar with, like I, it would be it would be insane of me to try to design a tool for them uh, without conducting research and, and trying to. Uh, uh, utilize my empathy in those contexts to better understand how they do their work. Um, but again, I think there are contexts where, you know what, if I were to, uh, if I were to design a podcast listening app, mm-hmm. I wouldn't need to do a lot of user research because I inhale podcasts. <laughs> and so <laughs> I could at least start with me, uh, yeah. and then, you know, listen to users as, you know, folks are adopting it, et cetera, and, and, and evolve it. I, it's not to be, um, uh, ignorant or neglectful of of user input, but you know I do think it it varies based on the the nature of the uh, service that you're building. Yeah, it sounds to me like a level of discretion or judgment needs to be made based on you know your, the the knowledge you have and affinity you have towards your audience. Yeah, I mean I that's why I start uh, I, I use the phrase user empathy as opposed to user research. I think you can be empathetic with users without necessarily 
having engaged in research, but research is a remarkable tool to um, uh, develop that empathy for audiences that you're not familiar with. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that sounds like a very fair perspective. I want to go back to something that you mentioned too, is there's that kind of three in the box model, right? Where maybe it's product design and uh, research or product design and some, something customer facing typically, right? And in that case, when we're building a product strategy from that, what are the most, in your opinion, again, in your experience, what are the most critical pieces of information that we all need to bring to the table to make sure we are doing, to use your words, building the right thing, designing the right thing? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's a, I, that's where the three circles work, I think, pretty well. Uh, uh, they're, they're pretty complete, right? Mm -hmm. You want to have an understanding of the market, the audience, uh, who they are, what they want to do, what, what is the journey that they're on? Uh, what is the context that they're operating within so that you're, uh, that you can develop a strategy that is in part informed by that authentic understanding of, of those people in their context. So that's kind of the user orientation. Um, uh, you want to have a sense of how you know you will succeed. That's generally where the business mm. circle comes into play, the viability, right? Whether it's, is this an adoption play, an acquisition play, a retention play, engagement? Uh, what are, What is it that you're trying to achieve? How will you know it's successful? Um, uh, because, you know, that that's one thing if it's a feature, it's another thing if it's a product or a service, you know, and, and it can change and different parts of an experience can have different metrics that you're looking for. So just having clarity is what it is that you're, uh, that, 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 that you're trying to achieve that, you know, when you've hit it, you're, you're likely successful. Yeah. And then I think, um, uh, uh, the third box that engineer, the, the engineering or feasibility, like, is this something that you can actually build at least in a reasonable time frame? Um, uh, uh, or are you, are you engaging in wishful thinking? Uh, yeah. you know, you don't want to, you could, you know, I can talk to users, I can develop a, a business strategy and, but it turns out that I need to use, I mean, this is kind of the problem, uh, with, uh, uh, a lot of the, the, um, really clever ideas that emerged from the first web boom mm -hmm. that we're now recreating even still today. Um, uh, but where, um, I think we were right, uh, about like, uh, what it was we were trying to do or like, uh, from a business standpoint, we were often right about, um, our audience and what it was they would like to do, but we were, we were just way out ahead of the technology, right? I, I, in the first web boom, there was a lot of work in like, um, video, uh, mm -hmm. that required broadband that people just didn't have. Um, and, uh, 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 so the, so the vision was kind of right. It was just, you know, five, 10, even 15 years too early. Sure. Um, and so by, by having those, those three things in balance, uh, they can frame, um, the problem that it is that you're tackling. And then, um, Again, I think the role that design can play, it's almost, in, in this case, it's almost, it's not quite separate from strategy, but it's not in trying to uh, drive strategy, it's trying to um, depict strategy, right? Design can take those inputs and then through ideation, concept generation, prototyping, kind of um, put out, here's a set of different possibilities based on these inputs. Mm -hmm. Do these feel right? Are these what we should be doing? Are we able to do it, et cetera? You can, you can ask some of those questions again. But 
but again, its design is helping uh, make clear what the implications of those uh, of that problem framing is. Yeah, I mean, so you know what I think this really comes down to is that we have a number of inputs or data or information we all bring to the table, and we make some decisions based off of that. And you know, at that point, those are just decisions. They're things that we've said or you know <clears throat> recommendations we've made, things we chose to do, right? And design brings this to life as almost a means of reflecting back on that strategy and say, is the thing that we made the right thing based on what we talked about? Right, exactly. And and is when you're prototyping, so again, before you get into development, when you're prototyping uh, concepts based on those strategies, you have an opportunity to change the strategy if you need to. Mm-hmm. You might you might find you probably don't want to change the the uh, kind of user needs part of the strategy. That's not likely changeable, right? That's mm-hmm. th- there's certain things that are fixed, but you might find that um, well, in in a in a project I did for a financial services client, uh, the company the client came to us saying our goal is retention. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we in, when we did research, we realized retention was not actually uh, a metric that uh, we would be able to affect. Uh, other things outside of the purview of the work we were doing were going to have more impact on retention, namely the uh, terms of the relationship, right? So financial services, um, you know, what are the fees? Uh, 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 how well are your how well are your uh, 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 stocks performing. There's a whole bunch of things that are not about the interface that you're designing mm-hmm. <laughs> that actually affect whether or not someone stays with you or leaves you if you're a financial services firm, right? Yeah. The relationship they might have with the professionals, if they have a broker, something like that, right? And so you need to be practical uh, or pragmatic about what it is you can actually affect. And what we saw through our research and, and through our initial concepting is that what we could affect is... Um, not retention, but but uh, a kind of acquisition. We could people who were working with our financial services client, if they already had a brokerage account, they could add a bank account, they could add a checking account, they could add an insurance account. That was something we could affect. Our research showed that people liked to consolidate accounts with a single um, with a single vendor, with a mm-hmm. single supplier, and so we realized, okay, it's not about retention. That's 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 something we're not going to be able to affect. But we can make it way easier for people to open new accounts, mm-hmm. uh, and that drives a lot of value for our client. And so we we were able to then shift kind of the the strategic focus, you know. So the the people were still needing the same thing, but we were able to tell the business, yes, retention's important, but not here. That some other part of the business is going to have to deal with that. Our part of the business, what we can do is widen and deepen relationships that people have with you. Sure. So curiously design in this case actually changed the goal of the product or experience yes it um uh it sharpened it i would say it it, it uh 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 honestly the the client had a lot of goals mm-hmm. and so uh including retention retention was the highest order goal though um and what we what we did was we we were able to kind of take that off the table and say you know what these other goals that you didn't consider as crucial are much more uh feasible for us to make an impact on. Yeah. So we're going to focus there. And we we're, we actually worked with them to do some uh, uh, financial modeling wow. of the impact of those um, 
by foc the impact of focusing on those metrics and showed them that there was still a lot of money to be realized wow. uh, if they if they did. And so they they were totally bought in. Wow. So I think uh, financial modeling is probably the outside of the scope of our conversation. But <clears throat> something that you said, I definitely want to dive into, which is, you know, this is with a client that you worked with. And so you obviously convinced them, right? We got everybody on the same page that these are the right things to do. I mean, this is the theme of everything we've been talking about, right? Doing the right things. Uh, in that particular case, what information or you know, whatever, basically what worked for you to get them on board to say, this is the product strategy. Here's how it's changed. How did you, how did you articulate that and get those folks on board with you? In that case, we articulated it through some uh, well-designed PowerPoint decks mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that laid out the thinking. Uh, I think one of the reasons I've had success, the success that I've had in product strategy is due to how I approach product strategy, which is by taking an almost lawyer-like rationale to building an argument mm -hmm. and a case for my recommendations. And so in that case, we had uh, we had the business strategy. You know, we, 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 we talked to a bunch of stakeholders and we understood what they considered important. And we were able to kind of feed that back. Because one of the things you find when you're working in a client context uh, is that different people within your client organizations often don't necessarily agree with each other. Mm -hmm. They might not disagree, but they're, they're focused on different aspects. And so they, there can be a lack of alignment. So we, we fed that back and, and showed them kind of the, the array of, of uh, hopes and dreams that different people within the client organization had. And, and in doing so, I think made it clear that there, that there needed to be some focus. Uh, we also engaged in a, uh, prioritization exercise. We we created a very simple two by two, where there was importance to the business on one axis and feasibility uh, of impact on another axis. Like how likely are we able to impact this thing, mm -hmm. regardless of how important it is to the business. And we plotted all these different um, business objectives on this two by two. So one of them was retention. Retention was very important to the business, but it was not feasible. Whereas the widening and deeping were maybe not as important to the business, but they were quite feasible, right? And so we were able to show them, do you really want us to spend a lot of time trying to solve a problem that we probably can't have a real impact on? Mm -hmm. Or do you want us to spend our time solving the problems that we can actually affect, right? And so that was that was part of it. Um, and then uh, through the user research, I mean, we were doing uh, video highlight reels. Uh, you know, we were going into people's homes. We were talking to them for two hours about how they uh, how they conducted financial planning in their lives, really try to get pretty deep with them. And then through the analysis of those insights, feeding that back and helping them understand what were the things that their, cl that their clients were looking for, uh, including things like consolidation, uh, when dealing with financial matters, uh, simplicity it comes up and and i i'm i'm hesitating as i say that word because <laughs> you don't want to oversimplify and it's almost become cliche to say simple simple mm -hmm. but you know I, I if i were to do it again it would probably be more around i would say clarity mm -hmm. right like how do you distill all these numbers which can feel overwhelming and abstract into something that folks feel like they understand and have a relationship with well simple so, and easy are mutually exclusive right can be can be depending on the on the problem that you're uh, tackling. Mm -hmm. but, so consolidation, clarity, 
um, ease of engagement, uh, certain actions that people wanted to do regularly were actually quite onerous mm-hmm. uh, in the because we were redesigning a system for them. And so we were, we, we were able to point that out, like, why don't we focus on solving the uh, making it easier to do these things that people want to do frequently? Um, uh, and so so through the user research, through this uh, uh, business case analysis, like through the financial modeling, through the prioritization, we were able to build a case on here's where we think focus makes sense uh, in terms of our, our activities. When we engage in our redesign, we are going to be trying to affect these uh, objectives. And that's where we're going to, that's where you're going to realize value based on our, our efforts. Um, oh, there was uh, one other aspect. Oh, one of them is um, you, you often have this, uh, well, clients or working in-house, right? People want to do everything. You know, we were, we were this, the, this, the project I'm thinking of was before minimum viable product was a common term. Mm-hmm. Um, but even now in the land of minimum viable product, people tend to want to do too much out of the gate because uh, they've had, they often have a lot of ideas and they want to get them all out there. Mm-hmm. Um, what we were able to do with them is help them understand how to phase the release of these new designs uh, in a way that you got something out sooner, you get people using it, and then you kind of evolve that experience over time instead of trying to do everything at once. And it will take so long to design and build that by the time you launch it, it will feel irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just to go back and summarize something where you started all this is you, and I quote, you said, I take a sort of lawyer-like approach. So first of all, Peter Merholtz and I just became best friends because I literally have had people say like, wow, you would have been a really great lawyer if you didn't, <laughs> if you weren't a product <laughs> or design person. And it is exactly the reasons that you outlined as to why. Again, everything you just said, I mean, uh, I'm, perhaps I'm applying my own bias to use some research terms, right? But everything I just heard you say is, well, what I do is I establish what your goals are. I establish what your customers want and need, not, well, forget want. I establish what your customers need and what their behavior is. And I present you a a compelling case between those two. And I make recommendations that are based on those. And it makes it very hard to, to argue against. And the reason that that excites me so much is it is literally the reason why we exist as a company is because we completely agree that this is the right way to do this work, right? It is, this is not science. I believe that anybody who is a designer or product person that comes to you and says they have the right answer, you should run as fast and far away from as possible unless they have done that work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think, uh, that is an excellent point. Uh, uh, yeah, it's just how I, I mean, it's honestly just simply how I think. And, and, um, I think this is why I, I mentioned earlier at the outset, how adaptive path kind of evolved from being focused on design to design and strategy. And it was this need to answer these questions, but then also feed them back to our clients and and build these cases as to why uh, why we thought the strategy should be framed this way and how it then drove the design decisions. We we actually, I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of design agencies complain about how their work never sees the light of day. <laughs> um, and I think the reason that that it, that happens much of the time 
is because the design agency didn't do their diligence to really understand the company, to really understand their business, to understand their users. And so they might have produced something that appeared to be a great design, but was faulty because it didn't fit within the ecosystem of the, the, the actual ecosystem of the client org. And so we saw our job is to really understand that. And when we did that, we saw our designs did get launched because they were cognizant of those contexts in which they were going to be built and delivered. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll tie it back to something that you've already mentioned, which is what are the ways in which we're going to measure the success of this? Because that's an important piece, right? Is we say, here's what we've heard from you, client, customer, stakeholder. Here's Here's what we've heard from our users or our customers. Here's what we recommend doing based on that. And by the way, here's how we'll know. Here's the things that we'll measure to know if that's successful. That, in my experience, has been the most successful and compelling case where literally the only people to argue that have some other ulterior motive, which, you know, we can't solve the human problem. Right. But outside of that, and I think it's a great attribute to Adaptive Path's success, your own personal success, that this is the way to build a great product and design strategy. Thank you. And, and yeah, uh, uh, we, for us, I mean, it was, it was less about like, we had to understand those, um, measures of success going into the design. So we didn't come out of the design and then say, you know, this will be successful <laughs> if right. we understood what it meant to be successful for before doing the design and of we course. geared our design to drive uh, towards those those outcomes, right? And I think that often doesn't happen uh, enough. I think people wait until they launch something and then they start measuring it, and then they're trying, and then they try to figure out, well, wait, how do we know when we're successful? Yeah, and even more uh, dangerously, I would argue that they try to game the metrics they have available to to fluff or cook the books on the design or product side, right? To say, well, look, we're seeing these things that are you know vaguely or generally important as metrics move based on designs we did, but maybe they're not the right ones. Potentially. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes. I mean, that's another, I would, I would, uh, th- that's either another example of what you refer to as the human problem, mm-hmm. uh, which does exist. Um, or it's, it's, uh, simply kind of reflective of you, you, you use the word bias before, right? Confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the things that I know that we do. And so we're going to keep doing them because I, they've worked before, you know, you get, you get stuck in certain ruts, um, whether or not those metrics are relevant or germane to the, to the problem that you're now trying to solve. Yeah, I love it. I'm going to summarize all this by simply saying we have so many great ways of creating the solution, executing on the design or the development of the solution. I would posit that, that your argument is that we need to focus more on the strategy and making sure we're solving the right problem. By understanding our business better, by understanding our customers better, and, pre- and presenting that great case of all of that information together more often. I don't know if I could have said it better myself. Well, Peter Mayerholtz, I uh, am happy to have had this conversation with you. I cannot say how much I've personally enjoyed it. And I know that everybody listening here will find this just as compelling as the case that hopefully we will help them provide in their designs and product strategy coming forward. Uh, thank you. This has been uh, delightful. Uh, I've definitely enjoyed it. Uh, I, I haven't had a chance to do a lot of product strategy of late. When you become a design executive, you tend to be focused more on things like recruiting and hiring or mm-hmm. other things. But um, 
in my new role, I'm I'm re-engaging the product strategy muscle. I'm mm-hmm. I'm dipping back into my adaptive path bag of tricks because blockchain is so new. We have to figure out who our market is and what they're going to do with it. So uh, I I look forward to um, uh, re-engaging with my my product strategy roots and and maybe coming up with some new ideas soon. I love it, and we can't wait to hear it. So. Peter, we appreciate you coming on the show. Is there anything you would like to share with those listening before we wrap up today? Um, the primary thing I would like to share in the in the nature of pure self-interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned earlier that I've recently written a book, uh, Org Design for Design Orgs, came out at the beginning of September, so it's still pretty recent. Uh, it's it's the evolution of my thinking that actually in some ways, I think goes beyond, for me, beyond product strategy to another level down within uh, the stack of the organization. You know, product strategy is great and it's essential, but it's insufficient. Uh, in my experience, I've I've done great product strategy work um, and clients or companies I've been working for weren't able to, to do much with it. And I realized it's because they're the way the organization was operating, how it was structured, uh, its values. Um, inhibited the strategy from being realized. Um, and so uh, for folks who uh, maybe feel that they're not yet uh, realizing the success they thought they would uh, through product strategy, uh, I would encourage you to look at the book, uh, Org Design for Design Orgs, and see if maybe there's some answers in there that help you kind of clean up uh, some of these core issues that then w- should make way for strategy to succeed, which in turn, you know, makes way for design to succeed. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. And we're going to make sure to include a link to that in the post for the podcast where you guys found this. And sounds to me like if you have your product strategy chops figured out and you're doing all the things that we discussed today, but yet you're finding organizational blocks that you need tackled, Peter's book sounds like a pretty good place to start. So We'll have that link available for you on the podcast page for the show. And Peter Merholtz, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us again. I hope everybody enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Well, thank you for having me. This has been great. Uh, I look forward to hearing uh, your other conversations uh, as I as I re-engage with uh, my product strategy practice. That sounds great. Peter Merholtz, thank you so much again. Everybody listening, we will see you next time. All right. Take care, Zach. Thanks for listening to Aurelia's podcast, talking about product strategy and design strategy. We are the first platform of its kind to help you solve the right problems for your customers and your business and build products and services that truly matter. You can check us out at aureliuslab.com. That is www.aureliuslab.com. You can check us out on Twitter at Aurelius Lab and Instagram Aurelius Lab. We'll see you next time.